Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ruby Rogues. I'm John Epperson, and today on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. Hello, Luke. It's uh, it's just us today, and we chatted a little bit before we started recording here, and we are just talking about tooling, really, and how we use it, and maybe abuse it, too. But just, you know, how... I mean, I guess the original thought, so I'll, I'll just start in here, was that, like, I have these tools you know, to do my development, whether it's my IDE, whether it's a gem that I'm using, whether it's the OS that I'm on, all of these things are involved in my development process. And over time, things get newer and you sometimes have to upgrade. You sometimes can delay that upgrade. Like for example, I delayed my Monterey upgrade till yesterday for good reason. But you know, you sometimes delay them. You sometimes are just Sometimes things force you to upgrade and sometimes you're just like, ah, you know what? I still like Carrier Wave. I'm going to keep using it even though active storage is around or, 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 you know, some other things, right? So we were just kind of thinking about all of these things and we just thought there was some stuff here that we could rip out. So I guess let's just dive in with like maybe philosophy on this. So Luke... If you were to look... I'm, I'm an active dinosaur. I actively <laughs> try to stay on the oldest, most established technologies I possibly can. I enjoy ignoring new versions by hardworking open source authors. I take a delight in getting maybe five, ten versions behind. No, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. Everyone loves a fresh version. But what I don't like, John, is I don't like tool churn. I can't stand having to relearn something when I've already had a tool that does a great job of it. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Well, okay. So maybe maybe we should do this this style. Like I'll ask the questions after you answer them. <laughs> he just like left in before I even began asking the question. But yeah, we were I mean, I was basically gonna ask you how you how you saw yourself. All right. Fair enough. I do. I, I take a genuine delight in using the simplest, oldest tech. Yes. And uh, firstly, if you already know it, you're always going to be faster doing something you already know, right? And my philosophy, when especially when it comes to Ruben Rails coding, is to use something which everyone knows, right? So at all costs, avoid upgrading to the latest magic stuff unless you absolutely have to. And uh, single-page apps would be the, the main offender. Everyone was on the single-page apps a few years ago. Now there's loads of single-page apps out there. 
and oh how the mighty have fallen and uh good old good old yours truly sitting there reacting badly to react has finally been proven right and uh, everyone's going over to using turbo and stimulus it's fantastic are you are you using turbo and stimulus no i am i am using oh okay so i was um i, I did a little sinatra demo so uh, i had i had turbo in production before rail 7 was officially released but that's because i wrote my own turbo backend onto a sinatra app because i needed a real-time updates front end for a manufacturing process and i was like well i'm gonna have to write my own from scratch you know for this in fairly embedded environment and then i kind of found some php code that re-implemented hot wire and said oh i could just write my own backend and uh it's like 10 lines of code away we go so yeah i am nice. um, but i'm also running various single page apps and i know which one i prefer to work on and it's the one that doesn't involve a webpack compiler i mean but that's out of scope really what we're really talking about here is tools we're talking about no. tools. we're talking about small okay. things a tool is a small thing right it's not a framework or a philosophy. it could be a tool is something you run to to i don't know find errors you know static code checking this kind of thing that's a tool uh, i mean right? it can be i mean so so for me right okay so back when backbone basically convinced us all that javascript actually could be better than it was at the time right then we were like oh this is very cool i you know i like what it's doing i like that that you know maybe my life is going to be easier and then i then right in there was roughly when you know the whole angular ember and then react was like just right behind them or whatever and, and there was like a lot of promise at that time that the amount of JavaScript that we were going to be writing was going to be less. And, and these were tools. These are tools, right? And I mean, I felt that way. Uh, but I think when it came down to it, like I, I never really felt like React delivered on the promise, which is what I think that you're basically saying here. And, but, but there wasn't really a good alternative, right? Like you just, you either were stuck with React, which didn't deliver on the thing that it said, but it did do some things that were really powerful and cool. Or you were like, well, I'm going to keep trying these other things, but you still were back in the land that you were before React. So you had other problems going on. And yeah, you just had to pick a poison. Hand code. Yeah, you had to pick a poison. I think one of the phenomenal things that, like, in my opinion, has come out in recent years is the rise of like the stimulus alpine kind of thing. Where I mean, there's a okay using using the analogy since a lot of us are in the Rails community. They're sharp knives. Uh, it's a it's a similar paradigm to stimulus, right? Sure. Yep. I guess there's there's a few libraries out there that are doing similarish type things right leave state in uh, leave your state itself in the dom yeah, handle handle like partial page reloads very gracefully and all that kind of stuff right one of the issues with mm-hmm. react and vue and basically most of these other javascript frameworks is they require so much control over your entire page that anything that's outside of its control has the potential to break everything either the th- the other thing the, the thing that isn't React or React itself. And you have to deal with that conflict, basically. One of the powerful things about Stimulus, and, and now Hotwire, which basically includes Stimulus, to be clear, 
is the fact that it is such a sharp knife and that it's compatible with everything because it's literally good at the one thing that it's good at, right? So stealing DHHS sort of mm-hmm. philosophical words here. But yeah, I think that's what makes it feel good, right? Um, I mean, as a person that like operates on gut and feel a lot like i use the words feel all the time so i'm just like "Hmm, this thing doesn't feel good doesn't smell right and and that's how i like judge stuff and then i have to like spend a lot of time thinking about what it is that made me think that it was that way right so i have to have to and i will figure that stuff out after if you're anything like me you always come up with the reason later yeah so I mean, like 99.9% of the time, I'm like, I don't like that, but I can't put in words why I don't want to use this technology. And then like eight months later, something's blown up and you're like, ah, that's why. <laughs> well, I mean, I would say that like, uh, I, okay. I mean, yes, but I would, I would definitely say that like, if eight months later something's happening and you're saying that's why, it could just be that you are attributing this problem and 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 crediting yourself with <laughs> foretelling it before it happened. <laughs> but but uh, what I mean is like a lot of times I like I mean your gut is just your subconscious telling you that something's wrong here, right? And sometimes it just takes you a little while to figure out what it is in your subconscious. That That's really what I mean. Sometimes it takes me a while to put it into words. Um, but yeah, either way, point is, I always was very frustrated by React. I definitely felt like it didn't deliver on the promise, but it like had value. And so it was like really hard to balance those two things, right? When there really wasn't an alternative that we could buy. Mm-hmm. Now there is stimulus. It's very cheap and uh, it feels very awesome. So it was easy for me to swap tools once I encountered it. I mean, I literally looked at the Hello World controller example and in my eyes just like popped out of my skull. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And then I used it and it was exactly as amazing as I thought it would be. And, and it, it felt good. It felt good to be right as well. But um, the the tool felt good. So, uh, yeah, so some tools feel like that because they are like very sharp knives, right? I've kept Rails in my toolbox because it's a really good tool. Um, it's a very good generic tool, but doesn't handle mobile apps very well, for example, right? There's lots of things that it isn't designed for that it isn't going to well, do. yet. And you're going to have to use other things. Not yet. <laughs> have you had an eye on the... The Hotwired course. Oh man, what's it called? He uh, it probably didn't edit here. What I was up. Strada. The Strada. Okay. I nope. Uh, so for me, so this is uh, according to Hotwired. It's uh, it's uh, all about making mobile apps using Rails. Have you tried out Hey? As in DHH's email thing. No. You need to try that out because that is like looking into the future of Ruby uh, Rails mobile development. So. Okay, are you are you ready to hear, hear hear my thoughts here? This is this gets into this it gets into like my my thing with tools. So mm-hmm. I I'm one of those people who, if given the opportunity, would literally come into work every day and spend eight hours a day fixing up my tools and making them better. And because just because it's interesting and fascinating to me, and I would just be completely 
ten, you know, I'd just be off on every tangent, fixing my tools every day, and I would never get anything done. But because that is sort of my natural inclination, I've worked very hard to like put rules around what I do. And um, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, that like kind of causes me to swing the exact opposite way. Like I, you know, this is why I'm so late to install Monterey, right? I was like, oh, I'm going to wait on Monterey because I want to wait like three months for everyone else to like solve the problems because I've got work to do today. I don't have time to like be down for half of a day or a whole day figuring out some weird thing again that just always happens every time you upgrade Mac. So you were right. I mean, but here's the thing. It's it's been way longer than three months and I just didn't get around to it, right? Like, And so like my reaction to um to to my own sort of like natural inclination is to sort of like swing way too hard and so a lot of times like there are cool tools that i'm like vaguely interested in that i'm just like nope gotta stay away and like so that's like my self-control like kicking in and then like i just don't touch a lot of things and then i wake up i don't know from my stupor i guess a while later and i'm like wow i haven't upgraded anything on my machine in forever now i'm having problems because (laughs) because i haven't upgraded to monterey and I was like trying to do something with right. a mobile app and I'm having trouble because Xcode, whatever, I can't connect to my test phone for some reason and like whatever, you know, so so now I have to. So, yeah, I mean, everyone's a little bit different. Mine tends to, like I said, I tend to like overreact in that way. And so maybe I'm in the dinosaur category because of because of my overreaction there. Um mm. But as soon as I find a tool, I, um, I cringe. I throw the old one out. Go ahead. I cringe as soon as I open the Dev Tools and Chrome, and it says there's an update to Dev Tools and Chrome. And it was like Dev Tools Chrome was it the update 100, update 1000 the other day? Did you see it in the Chrome Dev Tools? It opened up and had a little party thing. So hooray! It's a thousandth update to Chrome Dev Tools. I was like, oh no! Please, please. No. I think I'm on a hundred. Please don't update my Dev Tools. I don't. I don't. I mean, I remember oh, Chrome giving me some some party thing about something, but I don't remember what it was. I think it was in like Gmail or something. It's DevTools 100, not DevTools 1000, because what it means is they've just moved the buttons around. So all, all that to me means you got to learn it again. Now you have to look somewhere else. You have to learn where to click again. I mean, so that, um, I, I don't know. I don't like learning new things. I don't like meeting new people. I don't like any of that. I just want me and my computer doing the same thing we've always done. Got it. Got it. Oh, you know what? Yeah, I do have a what's new <laughs> thing down there. I, I just ignored it, you know. It's in that little console tab, you know, that pops up on everything that's not the console. And I immediately say, what the heck? Get rid of that because you're blocking my view. I don't even look at it ever. Oh, well, I get lost. I had to, I spent like 20 minutes looking for breakpoints on one unfortunate occasion when the client was in the room and they were like, you don't even know how to work Chrome. Oh, no, it's just changed. It's not me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's rough, dude. Uh, I, okay, so this is definitely off topic, but I also 
sometimes struggle when I'm like doing a demo and so uh, it's whatever. Like live code, this is why we say live coding sucks. Like anytime you're doing like a demo and something uh-huh. weird that's completely out of your control happens, geez, it's so frustrating. Especially if you're like demoing something that is like basically like MVP or otherwise, you know, you just stitched it together anyway because it's not polished. <laughs> if something is no longer under your control, stuff gets weird. Yes. So anyway, back on topic things. So what, what happens what happens when okay, so so tooling. So you get a new tool, right? I think that stimulus is amazing. In fact, I thought the stimulus was amazing pretty much almost from day one. And I literally had to just keep stopping myself on every project from literally ripping all the JavaScript out and replacing it with stimulus because it just made me that happy. It's a good move. <laughs> it is a good idea to refresh JavaScript. I have not done so. I'm doing something now. So I'm rewriting a, a Vue, quite a, a sophisticated Vue-based, Vue.js-based complex page. It's not a single page app, but it's a big page, right? So it's the it's a config page. So it's like the biggest. Oh, yeah. Your big Vue app. Yeah. And I'm rewriting that, that I call Vue. in Turbo and Stimulus. And at one level, that's a really bad and pointless waste of time right? Because it works. Why mess with it? But on the positive, as I've got this new tool and I've looked through this problem, I've realized I made a fundamental mistake with like the actual structuring of the data in the application. And because I made that mistake, there's fundamental things I cannot do in this app because I haven't abstracted one thing from the other. I need an extra table. I need an extra model in there to distance things. So I think that's, that's enormously valuable for for a product to realize that stuff early on so yeah you, you're sitting there i know you're sitting there john because you do a lot of client work like i do and you think oh man this isn't adding any value at all but if you have that fundamental realization while you're redoing your app while you're redoing your models that oh that all needs to change i'd say that is a valuable thing and the way the way i think of it is in, you never take the floor up in your house, do you? You never, you never take the floorboards up and have a look under your house. That's a, that's an awful thing to do. But if you do that, and you find a leaky pipe. You might have just saved your house. Um, yes, this is true. <laughs> I'm, I'm like imagining Luke. Uh, I mean, I don't. Um, you know, you're just. I'm doing that for real. I'm, yeah, you're just like pulling up your floorboards one weekend, floor. and you're whoever you are your housemate your your friends your your spouse comes home and they're like what are you doing you're just like oh i just thought i would pull up the floorboards and see if there was a leaky pipe i mean i yes uh no one's gonna roll with that but if you have control you know you can do that um that's true um this is fair i i don't I don't know what to say. I don't think that that is a is a mode that I could get into. That's for sure. I certainly would not be able to justify it to my fellow developers on a project. Yeah, and I have also definitely been guilty of being quite irritated at a uh, a fellow developer on a project who was just doing that. <laughs> also, at the same time, you know, I have to give that person credit because. I think that that person, so I, you know, I have this particular individual in mind that I'm thinking about that I used to work with a long time ago. And yes, I was often very irritated by the things that they would do uh, because I, you know, I felt like it added more work to my plate because I would have to fix some sort of bug that they caused, you know, by doing this, you know, without telling anyone, you know, caused problems in my life. But at the same time, that individual was also learning new things all the time. I had a lot of familiarity with new tools. I would say that they had shallow familiarity 
but but they did you know they, they explored a lot of things and obviously i think personally that there is a balance that you can have in this you can check out new tools without irritating your fellow developers all the time but i would you know i, I recognize that there's sort of a different space that you can be in if you're a junior developer there's an enormous value in doing the latest greatest stuff because if it's really new and fresh no one else is going to be significantly better at it than you are so this can be a really, really big step up in your career to kind of aggressively pursue the latest, shiniest thing, because then you can get a kind of better paid role doing that latest, shiniest thing. And against other candidates, you're going to stack up much better than you would. You know, you're not going to come in with, against someone like 15 years of Kubernetes experience because it hasn't been out for 15 years. So this is like a really good move as junior dev. However, if you're in a more senior position in the company or you're working in consultancy and you're responsible for delivering real functional features, this is a total nightmare because it, very little of this stuff is really going to add value to your product. It's just new, shiny, interesting stuff. Yeah, it's so first of all, it's really I, th- I think that doesn't. Ex- so the underlying problem here is that new, shiny stuff is not obviously is not obviously more valuable than the old stuff. It takes efforts mm-hmm. time and some some serious investigation and judgment and like a whole bunch of stuff to decide that you know what so for example you'll love this one luke i've talked with a number of people around my my the local charlotte area in the course of being involved with charlotte does is that are in that uh, cio cto role and it's there's a lot of JavaScript going on in Charlotte. There's a lot of React going on in Charlotte, and there's a lot of projects that were that existed that were that have been rewritten in the past few years in these front end frameworks. And I literally have gone to lunch with like about ten CIO CTOs at this point, and I've heard six of them say, "Oh yeah, we've had projects that we're rewriting in JavaScript, and uh, we're not done with them. It took a year to write them in the first place." We've been writing them in JavaScript for two or three years now, and they don't have feature parity with the original thing. And we don't expect to have feature parity in the next two or three years. And we also have 10 times as many developers as we did when these things were written and other things. It's crazy, like, because one of the reasons why I think stimulus is taking off is because people are like, shit, it, no matter what people say about React, it's not working. And look, that's anecdotal. But I figured you would love it anyway. It's anecdotal, but it's also one hundred percent true. I do believe that it's true. <laughs> I wouldn't be I wouldn't be saying it if I if I thought that they were lying to me or if I thought that their opinions were skewed by it in some way. I think that they're looking at it from the role of I'm paying. You know, they're they're in charge. They they're responsible to the company for the cost of these projects. They're responsible for the timelines of these projects and responsible for whether these projects are delivering or not. And they're looking at it from that high level view and they're saying it's costing us more it's taking longer and it's not even actually succeeding like this is a problem and and they feel like there's no way out of it and yeah i mean well opportunity i think there is but that's just me it's not a problem it's an opportunity (laughs) of um Speaking of trials and tribulations of uh, the wider development community, did you see the Hacker News discussion on Rails where someone linked to a survey that said the Rails developers were the number two slot, number two, second most in-demand developers in the world, Ruby and Rails developers. Would you like to guess which number one slot went to? 
which which language, which community is in the most demand? I, I have I have three guesses. My first guess is Go. My second is Rust, and my third it would be JavaScript. Or or I should take actually let me kick JavaScript out. Put Python there. That's the right one. You could have been right with Go. It's Go. 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 Topped that chart. Nice. Have you written, written any Go? I have written a little bit, and I've never dived in fully. I used it as a Kubernetes, a Docker multi-architecture test. So I had a Go program, compiled it to um, x86 and ARM, just used that as a really simple test to make sure the right kind of binary is coming down. Of course, because it's all a self-contained binary, and? that works really well. Okay, so... But I have never... And I use MinIO, which is... I can't recommend more. Um, MinIO is an amazing pro, um, project. That's also written in Go, and it's like literally one file. You kind of copy it to the server and away it goes. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've I've used I've been the beneficiary of Go. But I've never I've never given. I mean, Go if you're up. using Docker, you're the beneficiary of Go. But <laughs> and if you've done like any filtering or or some of the other more complex Docker commands, you're you're touching it right there. It's Docker written in Go. Yes, so a lot of the tooling around it is. I don't know if Docker Engine or anything is written in Go. I thought Docker Compose was a Python script. <laughs> there is some Python going on. So, but like all those Docker commands, right, are are using Go underneath. Mm, that's a, do you know what, John? That is a great example of a new shiny tool. Was when Docker came in. That's a fantastic example. Okay, of- let's talk about Docker. I was actually talking with somebody about this the other day, and I think that the Ruby community is burnt out on Docker, and for good reason. I still believe that Docker is amazing is and everyone should be using it. I, it's my belief that the problem is that the patterns that got pushed on the Ruby community as this is how you should do stuff is bad. And, and because they were bad, people, people were like, well, my experience is terrible. This stuff doesn't work. My stuff is is slow and like all these problems, right? It's just hard. And you're, you're asking people really fundamentally at the end of the day, I think that this is why I wrote ship lane and all this kind of stuff. I believe that uh, there's nothing wrong with a developer that literally doesn't know how to use their own computer. But as soon as you plop them in the ID, they can perform and, and churn out code. I think that's fine. Obviously, I don't understand it as a, you know, like I, I don't understand how you cannot know how to use your computer. But if you can functional, like if you can do the job without understanding, then who cares? At the end of the day, the patterns that that were pushed on the Ruby community for Docker required too much expertise in Docker, and most people in the to, to actually use. And most people in the Ruby community were not mm-hmm. interested in learning Docker. They weren't really interested in DevOps personally as a whole, and so they weren't going to learn that stuff. And so they had a bad experience using it. And the people that were interested in learning Docker were using these patterns that also like had bad performance problems and all sorts of things right and so people just kind of tired of all the 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 stuff you know and then everyone's like oh you can solve this by using kubernetes which is a lie but 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 now everyone's like wow okay i literally have to swallow the whole ocean to get my stuff to work like this is a problem so to me like this is the real issue and why docker's so painful for the ruby community is it was just sold wrong but i think that's fine like because you know if you think about the whole hype curve thing right docker was seriously hyped up yeah i think that now that the hype has been how uh, it's been deflated now the real work can happen mm-hmm. and and we'll be back on docker in a few years i think once people 
understand the value better and better patterns are pushed. That's my opinion on Docker. I've kind of got the hang of it now. I've kind of got the hang of it now. I still wouldn't reach for it. I have to use it in the day to day, but I've not yet had that experience of Docker where it solved a problem for me. And I think the thing about tools, any new tools, if it solves a problem that you have, you're going to jump on that tool, you're going to love it, you're going to promote it. But if a pool doesn't solve a problem, that you, or if you don't have that problem of kind of uh, conflicting, difficult environments or conflicting processes, you're not going to want to use that tool. I mean, this, this is exactly what happened, right? So when you have these bad patterns, then people have to find workarounds, right, to solve the new problems that they have. Mm-hmm. And then they wake up one day and they're like, huh, that's weird. Um, I thought that I was cleaning that one room in my house and all I ended up doing was moving my laundry into another room. And and that, now that room's dirty, right? And uh, <laughs> so like this... That's how I feel about that. <laughs> okay. It, it, it's the same... Look, it's the same thing as when people are like, oh, functional programming is so much better. I'm like, I love being a Rubyist and being able to do OOP and functional programming whenever I feel like it. I'm sorry that your language doesn't give you this, but uh, but yeah, I mean, like, I think the functional programming is great when it's good. I think that it's terrible when it's bad, right? Like like every tool out there, whatever. As soon as people like jump all over like something and like hype too much about it, I'm like, hmm, something is scary about this thing. I should I should like watch from the sidelines and see if it's good or not. But I really felt like Docker was a paradigm changer. Like so so as somebody and the reason why I thought that is because I came from a place where I got into DevOps a long time ago. I was doing it like when yep. basically it was just just sysadmin stuff, right? And like we didn't have a sysadmin at the company that I was at, so somebody had to learn it. I did. Very cool. I wrote lots of scripts to handle installing new machines when we needed them. We the uh, I want to say... Did you write Perl scripts? Uh, no, I mean, I wrote Bash scripts or whatever because we were installing stuff on Ubuntu. But, <laughs> you know, EC2 came out and it was awesome, right? It was like way better than, you know, yeah. the, the the VMs that we had before that. And, you know, obviously EC2 has gotten a lot harder to use or whatever. And now we have other competitors and all that kind of stuff. But it was really awesome when it came out. Very cool. Wrote some scripts to install things. It was just cool that I could easily get a new VM. I didn't have to spend like half of a day, like basically ordering a new VM or whatever before I could finally like start installing it. Okay, that was better. Then then we came out with like, uh, well, I guess... Puppet actually existed, but like then Chef Puppet became like a little bit more popular and that made my life easier. Except that every time you try to update a server, there's a lot of interesting quirks that go on. And and updating a server is the hardest thing because if you think about it from this if you're a developer, but you're the sysadmin on your team, you you really only touch your servers when they have problems. So the last time you updated was six months ago. My job isn't to be a daily sysadmin, so I'm not going to keep my chef scripts or my chef recipes like up to date on a daily basis, right? I'm just going to keep them locked in six months later. I then go try and like fix my server and boom, stuff breaks because there's uh, version conflicts now or Ubuntu archived, you know, because I'm running on like uh, an out of date version of Ubuntu now, right? So it archives, you know, if you go too far back in time, it like archives some of the repo repositories or whatever. So that means the URL changes. Yep. So, so stuff breaks and those, those errors don't bubble up very well and it can take you a long time to figure this stuff out. But you did it. Dare I ask which version of Ubuntu? Currently? 
I think I think most of my stuff's on which which the, the oldest. Uh, I not sure that I could answer that question. I'd have to actually look at this. I know which project has my oldest version of Ubuntu. It's it's actually probably not Ubuntu. It's actually probably Debian. It might be Debian Jesse or the version before, but I'm not sure which one. But either way, whatever. If I can get it working, I'm probably not going to update it. Like just it kind of depends, right? But you know, I'm only depends how complex that and like the security needs of it for example and like what it's doing right mm. so there's a lot of reasons why you might why your chef scripts might not be in a good place or your puppets like all that stuff ansible has the same problem doesn't matter they all solve the same problem in a very similar way so anyway these things have certain specific problems that crop up due to how a developer that's acting in the DevOps space is using it versus how a sysadmin that's doing it every day might use it. And I feel like these tools have shifted towards being better tools for sysadmins than they are for developers and yeah. discover Docker. And and while it kind of sucked to use for a long time, when Docker for desktop came out, like it suddenly became really easy to get working for people. And that made it that made it easily accessible because you can go install Docker for desktop. I tried it before. I never tried it before. Docker. It was messy. Was it like before Docker? So you would have to install. You would have to. You know. You'd have to install uh, the VM thing. So you're on. If let's let's take Mac or Windows because they're going to be similar-ish experiences. You'd have to have Docker installed yeah. in a VM. You'd have to have Docker Machine installed if you're on Mac. If you're on Windows, you would have to have a separate interface, and you would have to be using WSL. Actually, I take that back because pre-WSL, you it just was very messy on Windows, and I don't remember all the steps. I do remember that I had to do some quirky stuff. WSL came out, made it easier. Docker for Desktop came out, made it even easier. And in Mac world, Docker for Desktop came out, and I you can get rid of you could get rid of uh, Docker and Docker Machine, and now stuff would like work. Uh, Docker was just basically running at a VM for you. Now Docker for yeah. Desktop wraps it all in a machine. Fantastic. It's always worked great on on Linux because you just installed Docker. It, the problem, yeah. well, I, I take it back, you did still need Docker Machine on Linux as well. Now you do not, which is phenomenal. But yeah, I mean, it basically, now it's pretty easy to work. You don't have to know, you don't have to know that you need these five libraries to install, install them all, get them all configured together and go. Now you just install a freaking program and it works, right? You now have it available to you on the command line. Boom, you can go. Yep. That made it accessible to people that, weren't going to spend all day long in a tutorial for a tool that they didn't understand in the first place, trying to figure out like why their machine wasn't working because they're looking at a tutorial from four months ago before Apple updated something or, you know, they have a different stuff installed from Brew, you know, or their SSH is SSL, you know, libraries out of date or something, right? All of these things like make it difficult for people to access, you know, access a new tool. So, Packaging up a tool, you know, configuring it, making it out of the box available to things suddenly makes it accessible to people. And that's what happened to Docker. And that's that's when it's like, you know, be, suddenly that's when I had the popularity jump or whatever. But yeah. How much luck have you had convincing your colleagues to use the new amazing tool? That you've For teams that I'm on, not too much. For trying to convince my colleagues who are on their own teams, but don't have somebody on their team that, you know, like loves Docker and is like, you know, knee deep in it every day. That's way harder because they have to become that person. And many people are not ready to become that person, you know, and 
I think that right now, today, you kind of have to have Docker knowledge on your team to make use of it. I think there's still a little bit more tooling that has to be made to make it invisible to people. Hey, folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. You know, JD, we were talking just a second ago about empathy, and it seems like a common concept within the programming community. And yet, when we're building features for customers, a lot of times we call it done when it passes CI, deploys, and doesn't give us errors. And that really doesn't seem very empathetic when it comes to our customers because we're not looking at what they're doing. Do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, at the end of the day, until until your code actually hits the customer, um, you don't really know if it's any good. Uh, you know, everybody uses things in so many different weird and wonderful ways. You can only really debug in production. Um, yeah, I've been there. It's old, done. Yeah. It's not done. Oh, crap. It's not done. <laughs> I got to go fix it. Now it's done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And when we see things like error reports flowing into Raygun, right. you know, a lot of the time it's things where you just kind of go, oh, that was a configuration that as a developer, mm -hmm. I, I didn't think could exist, but actually here's an example. And so it's connecting that code to customer and your development team through to real users and their experiences, which to your point, builds real empathy. And the best software teams care a lot about how their customers are experiencing their software. Right. It's kind of the feedback from the app, but it's also kind of this meta feedback as we do better, we tend to get less of this negative input back from our customer, which really does reflect empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think to your point earlier about CICD pipelines, like we've done an amazing amount of work as an industry to automate getting to prod really fast. But if you really want to go super fast, you need to close that loop with real-time feedback from prod back to the dev team. And that allows them to do things like fail forward and just do, you know, really leverage that investment in CICD and, and it can turn into a real superpower. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to encourage you folks, yeah, set up your CICD, but then go sign up for Raygun. They'll actually give you a free trial and you can get it at raygun.com. My challenge is that uh, although I'm a self-described tool dinosaur and I love old tools, there sometimes is. Sometimes I find a new old tool, right? Sometimes I find something from the past, sure, which is amazing. And I'm like, look, we could use this. This is going to solve all our problems. And it's like five years old, so it's definitely going to work. <laughs> that doesn't seem that old. <laughs> and taking people with you on that journey is incredibly difficult. Yep persuading people that they don't need the thing that they've just spent two years mastering really is a challenge and even if it is going to be better for the product better for the business you know it's going to save a lot of time people don't like having their tools taken away that's a very difficult conversation have you ever taken anyone's tool away john um i watched other people take people's tools away and i watched how poorly they reacted to it so i i don't do that. I, I actually worked really hard to to give people consensus or, or to get consensus from people mm -hmm. that we're going to do this thing. And so I often, yeah, I'm not the person that like, you know, I, I don't believe in the whole, you know, do first, apologize later. I typically actually try to get permission or whatever. And, and I do that through trying to get consensus around people, you know, get consensus from like all the people on a team. And that can end up blocking like things that I want to do. It's, it's a great way. It's a great way to lose all your senior developers. I was involved in a company that lost every single one of its senior developers because of a kind of engineering management level decision. And they just they just all quit. They changed the um, the front end, and yeah, ev literally everyone left. It was it was almost glorious to behold the dominoes falling. So what you're saying is very important. You know, if you if you want to manage maintain a good team, 
you know, you can't push, can't push a tool into someone's hands. You just can't do it in tech. You have to persuade. Well, you can. That's just a cost. This is going to give them value. <laughs> um, it has to, well, I'm saying it has to be persuasion. You can't mandate. You can't make people change the way they work. This is an incredibly unsuccessful way of managing a software development team. Of course, this is something I have done. So I have, I have been managing software teams and, you know, been this kind of Stalin-esque figure, uh, central planning, like a Putin-esque fist crushing a development team by making them change the whole way they work. I have, I have done that for real. But in my defense, John, the things I was doing were quite innocuous. I uh, I introduced Git for source control. I mean, as also that being part of the Git cult myself, now. I certainly have no problems with you doing mm-hmm. this. But it massively upset. I believe it. People didn't like it. They still don't like it, right? So that was one thing. The other thing I introduced was a um, I can't remember data dog. It's probably data dog, but client side error monitoring. So I I said we've got to start monitoring JavaScript errors on the client, not just server-side stuff because it's an e-commerce site we want to know it, our page break oh the quality assurance team went mad over that really there was there was a there was a total yeah but you added a lot to their workload uh, if you got like a zero yeah if you got a zero defect policy but that zero defect policy only applies to the server you're running your software on no problem if your zero defect policy is suddenly extended to anyone who happens to d- connect to your website with any mobile device Got it. suddenly these people live in an entirely different universe so what you're saying is you you gave them a new tool which actually conflicted with the policy that they had or whatever yeah it's fair it caused the most amazing structural problems it kind of broke the ethos of a company and i don't i mean i, I regret it i genuinely regret introducing that level of you regret it because it was just such a bad i mean maybe you I maybe do. you introduced it in a bad way but 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 surely their products Before got better they had no idea they had no idea what an awful world mobile browsers <laughs> were oh man Sur- surely the product got better though oh it was like taking it was like taking a group of children through the willy wonka tunnel all right fair enough so they were they were horrified and upset by it. I have some questions for you, Luke, and and I suppose I'll have to answer them too. But so we've been talking about how we you know kind of go about like getting new tools or something. So I'm interested. I feel like we should yeah. probably answer like two questions. One: Are there some cool, really cool new tools that like we're like ah these are on the I'm I'm trying these out. I love these new tools. These are the sharp knives that I'm I've added to my bag. Are there some tools that you're like ah, these really suck and I really wish there were some replacements for them. Man, that's a tough question. So for front-end stuff, my new tool is Rhoda. I've been trying to build a product in Rhoda. I haven't got there yet. I've got stuff in production, but it's not a product. But I really like the the Rhoda infrastructure, and that's my new kind of passion. I'm finding it incredibly difficult to get to grips with, especially coming out of a Rails routing model or a Sinatra routing model. There are some you have to t- totally change gears. And so that's my new exciting tool, but it's not, you know, I can't recommend it yet. It's almost like there's a book called Mastering Rhoda. It's almost, it's almost like they need another book. I'm not volunteering to write this book, but I, I know exactly what would be in this book. And it would be a series of reference projects. Like here's how you write a blog in the system. Here's how you write a notes based app. Yeah. Uh, one of these cookbooks it doesn't exist. And I find it frustrating. 
in terms of what else? Uh, so I'm doing a lot of uh, database work. I started using is it, is it PG PG monitor, uh, one of these database level monitors. Something I never really looked at before, and it's part of shifting shifting out of the rail stack into something else. Uh, now I no longer trust my database queries. So I've started really looking at database query performance in a way I hadn't before. And I want something that does graphs. I don't just want to see a number and a SQL statement. Now I want to see average times. I want to see average load times. You know, I want to see the bad queries. I want to see the quick ones too. And the voluminous ones. And Postgres dashboards or MariaDB dashboards, something I've never gone into before. But now I want that. As soon as I do a new project, I want to see a database dashboard. You uh, have a look at those. You know that you can spend a lot of money and and get that right. You can spend a lot of money and get it from something like uh, uh, New Relic or or Scout. The Datadog. Datadog does that too. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Datadog or Honey Badger. Yeah, all this stuff. Now I want that. Now I want that straight away, and I want it in my dev environment. So I want to see those graphs. I want to see how long this stuff takes because you 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 know you you otherwise you miss the n plus one queries, and that drives me crazy. When you mm, if you're looking for n plus one queries, um, Bullet Bullet will help you uh, find them. Very true. Very true. In terms of like just day to day dev, I'm I'm kind of in and out of VS Code. I'm I'm in and out of VS Code, and that's like after twenty years of Vim. I'm kind of I'm nearly all the way there. That's probably the biggest tool change, especially for Ruby add-ons. Like it kind of solar graph for Ruby. I've actually got completion now. I've never had autocomplete as a Ruby developer ever. I had a look at Ruby Mine, never really spent any time in it. To get autocomplete using my own classes in Ruby has been uh, pretty transformative. So you're saying uh, that you like it? You like the getting the autocomplete? Yeah, my philosophy is I don't really want an IDE because in my own projects, because if I, if I need the IDE to autocomplete, then I haven't structured the project in a memorable way. So you know, I need to go back and refactor. But I'm increasingly doing work on not just brownfield projects but this field john is incredibly brown this is this is a very much very much developed field in that rather than being brown is there's kind of rubble and concrete everywhere so in those situations a fully featured ide really helps you out as a so if you're fighting for survival in enormous code base that's when i've really kind of got value from VS Code. As someone who has also been a text editor user, basically, uh, for for pretty much my whole career as well, I did use IDEs for the first couple of years, and I, I graduated out of that once I realized that they were getting in my way. I am hearing, when I talk to people about the problems that I had with IDEs, I am hearing from people that basically those problems seem to have gone away. So it's possible that I might, I, I probably try once a year to do ruby mine or to do uh vs code or something right i haven't really take a permit taken a permanent plunge but you know like the things like uh not trusting my ide to to handle environment stuff very well right you know comes from the fact that like basically like if if the ide you know has an update or you know if your your os has an update right and then now suddenly like your ide can't connect to you know, the environment or if the environment that your idea is using, IDE is using, is separate from the command line environment, you can have various issues. Uh, and since I use Docker for literally everything, making sure that my IDE, you know, has access to and would be using the appropriate Docker environment is very important. 
there does seem to be work in this arena. But yeah, I mean, I have to be kind of convinced that that's, you know, like I don't want to, for me, that's so costly to lose a whole day trying to get environment fixed when it's broken that once again, like these kinds of problems don't happen normally. They happen on a day when oh, production's down because there's a production bug oh no, my environment's down on my machine at the same time. And I'm literally stuck for four hours just getting the environment working. Can't even work on this production book. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of situation that I really hate. And that's what I'm always trying to avoid. I tell you the tool which I'm, I'm crying out for at the moment. And this is so dumb, you'll laugh at me. But I have found it and it must exist. What I want is a tool that looks at log files, whole, maybe loads them, maybe just one. And it looks for Ruby backtraces. So if it sees something in that file that looks like a Ruby backtrace, it sends me a notification, an email, whatever. That's what I want. You would have thought it would just be a regex and like 10 lines of code, but I can't find it. So, so you just need to install error monitoring software and uh, intercept those backtraces before it happens? There's a couple of reasons why I don't want to do that. Um, firstly, some of these programs I cannot change. So some of these log files, I do, I cannot, I don't have control over the program, mm. but I have access to the log file, so I can't change it. And that would be an excellent solution. And the second thing is, I don't want it to do that. That's not how I want it to work. <laughs> I want it to look at the log file because that's what I do, and I want the computer to do what I do in the way I do it, but do it for me instead of me having to do it myself. That's fair. Rather, you know, so we're not on Stack Overflow, so I won't tell you that you're wrong. That seems to be the, the new way of dealing with hard problems now over there. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, people are getting ruder. I, 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 I deleted <laughs> one of my answers on Stack Overflow because one of the editors came along <coughs> and rewrote my answer. And I said, that, that's not what I wrote. You can't just rewrite what I wrote. That's not how the internet works. I mean, it is, but (laughs) that's part of the problem. But yes, no. So, uh, you know, I mean, I got you. I'm not going to write it. I feel like, uh, (laughs) I feel like there's probably a way to to write something to do that. But yeah, I'm sure that I know it's a regular and that's it. That's all there is. AI AI would probably be a really good solution for that, but it's probably also like a waste of effort. Yeah. That's that's another thing I'm looking for. Ruby is like a decent um, OpenCV set of bindings. That is a bit of a, a lack in the Ruby ecosystem in terms of tools. I can't drop into OpenCV easily with Ruby. Suppose I want to read something, right, that spies on my neighbors using number plates. So suppose I'm like, uh, no, suppose I, I'm like monitoring my driveway, right, for real, and I want to see what cars come down my driveway. So I want to do a bit of ANPR, number plate recognition. So it's on my property. It's all legal, John. We're not doing anything illegal uh, here, right? Yeah. Uh, but okay. um, suppose I want to do that. Yeah. Or, or I want to play with like face tracking and put like a stupid hat on my face in Ruby, just like I do on Facebook. Where's the tool to do that? I know there's a learn library. I don't I don't know how much is out there in the AI space. But yeah, I mean, you're correct. I know that we have less stuff than, you know, you can find over in Python, for example. But you can also shell out to these tools that exist. So yep. you could wrap it, write the gym yourself, Luke. And then all the all the people that want to spy on their neighbors can can use it. So I feel sometimes in the Ruby community, I feel like all of the devs who use Python are like still plugged into the matrix. And like when a new Ruby library comes out that does like implement OpenCV that can do, I don't know, um, some 
uh, obscure numerical method that's only available in Python, then we kind of go in um, like uh, in the Matrix and unplug people from the Python ecosystem, and then they kind of come into the Ruby world. That's how, that's how I that's how I imagine it in my head. I mean, yeah. Look, if we write the if we can write these libraries, I bet that we could steal all the Python folks. I agree. I mean, yeah. So uh, we we're pretty welcoming over here. We will take. We'll take uh, secondhand developers. That's fine. We, I mean, most of us. <laughs> I mean, I am not, but I'm a. I'm a special case where I like literally landed. My first job was a Ruby job right out of college. But that's not the norm in the Ruby community. Most people in the Ruby community are are secondhand, right? Like they came from somewhere else before. One of my favorite bits in uh, Jeremy Evans' book was the bit when he, whenever any other language comes up, he refers to them as former Java developers, former Python developers former javascript developers fantastic device <laughs> yes that's i mean it's there's a bit of a, a religious aspect right to the ruby community if if i'm being honest right there's sort of like mm-hmm. like this idea that like once you're over here you belong to the ruby community itself like there's a possessive aspect to it there's a like a, a fence taken that you might like something else <laughs> Yeah, there's, you know, there's there's some elements of religiosity that definitely mm-hmm. crop up. There's this idea that, you know, there's there's even an idea of heresy, right? Like, there's like, oh, that's not the Ruby way of doing things, right? Like, it's uh, it's analogous right. to heresy right there. So yeah, there's there's a religiousness to it. Um, sometimes I think it's unhealthy. Like, I I definitely am. I think that zealotry causes lots of problems, and so I think if you have like this, you know this mindset of like what is the correct way and you're willing to like hit people with a hammer to make them do the the right thing that you think is the right thing to do that's very dangerous in my opinion but you know that's very willing dangerous. to very tolerate a little religiousness i happen to like the ruby community as a whole so <laughs> <laughs> well I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna keep trying to convert convert more people pull more people out of a matrix um yeah but yeah, in terms of other tools, that's what I'm crying out for at the moment. It's just really basic stuff. I want to be able to do this stuff within... Really basic stuff. I love that. And, well, yeah, just, just reading number plate, putting a fake set of ears on people's head. It's 2022. I think... John, uh, you know, this is what, what, what the kind of cool kids want, is ears on the head and open CV people. I do think that Mac is still... I mean, I really hate the price that I'm paying for the hardware that I'm getting right now. Uh, again, I take it back. I'm sorry. M1, yeah. prior to M1, I was mad at Mac or at Apple. Uh, right. I, I think Apple is doing okay with the M1 architecture or whatever. So we'll see where that goes. So that's, But that's still like kind of like the winner as far as like the tool that I like to use to code on. I'm still very happy with Sublime Text. And actually, I think Sublime Merge is my favorite like visual uh, Git thing out there right now. And since I was already on Sublime Text, it was really easy for me to just use both. They have integrations with each other and things, um, which is very nice. Um, I still like text editors. I like my text editor to be pretty, uh, which is why I'm not using Vim. Uh, <laughs> uh I like stimulus, right? Like, I think the stimulus is phenomenal for front-end development. And actually, I did something recently with Turbo and Stimulus, and uh, I'm doing a lot more Turbo and Stimulus together. I think they work really together, which is basically most of Hotwire minus the uh, minus the sockets portion. So yeah, it's basically Hotwire. Hotwire is awesome. 
yeah uh yeah those are the big things i mean i think that rails is a very good generic tool right now like it's not i don't think it's like hot i am not sure that it's really a sharp knife it's just really good for the kind of work that i do which happens to be lots of needing authoritative backends server and client relationship stuff that's most of the stuff that i work on and because of that rails is really good at that i was fast to what's up it's fast to yeah i mean it's it's basically the same speed as anything else that's operating in that same space or roughly the same yeah i mean you can you can nitpick things apart but like are you really going to give up on your developer happiness and you know the ecosystem and just like how fast it is to develop on versus like you know i mean like performance speed or whatever for the tiny bit of like performance speed that you're getting for using you know javascript or you know django or php or something like you're, you're basically getting an almost a very imperceptible performance increase for i think a very high cost so uh so that's that's where i'm at on that i mean geez postgres is literally out of the big four databases it's just far and away better that's currently like my tool over there. I don't even consider anything else. And like, why would you use, unless you have a special use case, why would you ever use a NoSQL database right now? You literally have a NoSQL database baked into Postgres alongside your relational data and it's faster. <laughs> like, like, why would you do anything Jason, else? Jason B. What's up? Are you a Jason B. H-Store was faster than, than Mongo was. Like, and then JSON came out and then JSON B came, like, geez, come on. <laughs> like, unless you need something like, like React or like oh, man, Cassandra. Taking me back there. Yeah, yeah. Unless you need something like one of these like stores where like they actually are giving you something like really special, right? Like, I don't think that a general NoSQL database makes sense anymore when you can literally just, you know, be like, all right, I have users and I'm going to put all the weird stuff, you know, in a JSON column on my users table, right? It's just not, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to go all documents all the time when eventually the re- I mean, the justification for using NoSQL databases, right, is, ah, well, I don't really know what my data is going to look like. That's great. That's what JSON is for on, you know, but you probably know something about your data. You probably have unique identifiers. You probably know that they are a user and everything that you know that you stuff in a NoSQL database is stuff that you can't query very quickly. So, I mean, why wouldn't you want to have your cake and eat it too? That's that's the awesome thing about Postgres in my opinion right now. So I think I think that Postgres is a very sharp knife. I think it's amazing and awesome. And I think it's a you know, the general new, tool the too. The tool I have in Postgres is to use event listeners and store procedures and tables. That is my there we go. You've given me one of the new tools I'm using this year is using a um let me see if I can get up. Are you familiar with this? You have like listen channels? I don't use them because I I try to avoid that kind of stuff. But I I sort of have this like, I sort of have this blocker, like mental blocker against using low level database stuff because it has to be maintained Mm -hmm. by somebody that has very specific database knowledge. And I don't want to be that person and I don't want to hire that person. So, and and because there are alternatives to all of those things that I can do from a higher level, I'd rather use those things. And I'm also not in a scenario where the high performance that, you know, is, is necessary. So yeah, triggers, I think it's called a trigger. Uh, So 
the reason this is like my new amazing tool, which I convinced no one is is fantastic, but believe me, it's coming to my products. And I've I've I've, I've done it. I've got one that's using for real. The reason I love this is because it completely eliminates Redis. So I can now run um, everything I was using for Redis as in the kind of events churn, the back end to a lot of hotwire, you know, update, notify, uh, real-time things coming at you on the screen. I can now run through this idea of a channel notification in Postgres. So I'm guessing that you do not use Sidekick, and I'm also guessing that you do not use caching with Redis, uh, both which, you know, I mean, it, I get it. It eliminates Redis for what you're using. But yeah, I mean, people who are using Redis for other reasons will still want it. But they will. They'll, they'll have to. But my dream is of a kind of completely Redis-free stack. Uh, I, I really hate Redis. I can't tell you how much I dislike So there is a thing that Postgres doesn't handle very well that things like Redis uh-huh. and some of the things do handle. And, and that is basically handle like data aggregation, you know, querying stuff, right? Because like any, mm-hmm. any, whatever, whatever the classification of database is, it's like, I don't remember if it's ODBC or whatever. Anyway, when you're storing things as tables and records, right? That particular way of storing things is not very good for data aggregation querying, right? And so like there are other tools for helping you to handle that, whether that's Elasticsearch, whether that's these data warehouse solutions. There's a lot of different ways of handling that particular space that and Redis in the past has been used as a tool for to help people handle this stuff. So there are reasons to not use Postgres. Uh, it doesn't matter how many triggers and views and things you use eventually if you are running into this kind of thing you'll eventually need a different solution and that's okay because that's a different problem space but i do think that NoSQL, outside of like special use cases like i said like if you're using like cassandra like it's because you want is you, you have massive amounts of writing you know in multiple places in the world and you want you know eventual uh uh consistency or whatever like if that's your particular use case very cool go use cassandra that's cool. Also, I would probably have a job that moves all your data out of Cassandra over time. But, you know, it like it syncs it with a database, right? That makes querying easier or something like that. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, you can end up in a situation where you have so much data coming in that that's not possible. But I mean, like I'm saying, like, there are edge cases where these things are better. But I don't think as a general, I, there's a reason why the relational database is stuck around for so long. Okay. Yeah, I mean, on, on the top of my mind, those are the awesome tools. Tool for Docker. You. I got one last tool for you that I've been using nonstop for the last okay. few months, and that is D-Beaver. Are you familiar? I with am. D-Beaver? I know exactly what D-Beaver is. Oh my word! <laughs> D-Beaver has saved All right. saved me. I have some. It has saved me. It saved entire business. Is that because you uh, have to livelihoods have been saved by D-Beaver? Is that because you have to access multiple databases, multiple database kinds? It's just such an amazing tool for reverse engineering a code base. So if you're not sure how something works, you just drop into DBeaver and say, right, we'll just black box that whole thing and see what actually changed. It's the most amazingly powerful... <laughs> how are you using DBeaver? Yeah, so my understanding, because I've used DBeaver in the past, is I just used it as a query tool, right? A SQL query tool. No, I'm using it to explore. So I'm using it to kind of dive into... Just see what's on the tables? What it's doing. I'm using it as a kind of... To literally literally swim through, like a majestic beaver, <laughs> swimming through a crystal clear Canadian... All right. <laughs> so my D-beaver is swimming through the pool of data uh-huh. to find 
the the horrible blockage in the van. <laughs> Got it. All right. So so you mean yes? Okay. So you're you're just checking out the tables, seeing what's on the tables, things like that. Yeah, I mean that's exactly. I'm using it's like a browser. Got it. All right. <laughs> yes. I mean I don't know. Yeah. That I, back when uh, if you remember when like the MySQL was it MySQL admin or whatever? Like it just like disappeared for a while. That's when I that's when I got into using Debeaver. And then and then I then I during that time I switched over to PGP or I'm sorry, to Postgres and PGP admin and and some of the other tools just kind of were terrible. And so I just kept using it for a while and then PG admin got better and I stopped using it. Yeah, they were, they got like some kind of big release for like MariaDB eight. Yep. Uh, Maria DB8 is um I had to install it with my brother who was uh, doing this kind of Laravel. Yeah, one of my buddies who uh who I worked with on on that project that I switched to Postgres on, he still uses DBver because I got him to it, and he he swears by it still. But yes, a good oh, a good SQL query browser is is definitely a thing that that I think people need. Yeah. Okay. So I have one last tool. And that would be Docker. I definitely swear by Docker. I think it's. I think it really is awesome. I think it's hard to, like I said earlier, I, I definitely talked about, I think, the cons of getting into it. But I do think it's paradigm changing. And I do think that that'll come back once, once a little bit more tooling has been written about it. I definitely thought the hype was premature. But of course, I was very excited that other people liked it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I think in the end, yeah. I'm still excited about it. I think it does change the world. Uh, I also like Docker and I like using it and I'm perfectly happy to get waist deep in all the tools and things like that. So of course I'm fine with it. And the effort now has to be put towards creating the tooling so that the people that are not super into Docker can still use it invisibly, basically. I think that's coming very soon. So my question is, you know, Docker-compose or Docker Space Compose, which is... Obviously Docker hyphen Compose, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You you familiar with Docker Space Compose? So, yes. So, I uh, will probably... That is is very confusing for new Docker users. That is very... I'm probably going to hang out on Docker Dash Compose for a while because the the new one is still not feature parity complete or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And... I am not sure that I'm using any features that that I need to, but I'm still probably hanging out here until until I feel like completely comfortable with it. At the same time, I've got to move like like I got to move ship lane onto that and things like that. I've got to move things to that new thing and start pushing those new patterns for other people. But I'm probably going to be like sticking behind a little bit here. The last time I looked, which was in November, it wasn't ready for the prime time because it could only do like you know using remote stuff it wasn't set up for local docker development which is what i do 99.9 percent of the time yep this is this is like one of like i I could talk about like docker and like my own opinions on like like their failures and their successes right like because i have lots of opinions on that but i think that the whole docker space compose thing is is on my list of failures for them because it could move over to the success category but right now i think that it's causing only it's only causing confusion and it isn't bringing value to the table i feel like for you know and this is this is a developer perspective like maybe it's bringing value to the sysadmin uh, but me as a developer side of devops i don't think it's bringing value to the table because that's not in my perspective how developers are really using it that might be how sysadmins are using it but I I feel like DevOps is a marriage, so I have I have opinions that you know reflect that. Cool. 
Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Should we do some picks that are not related to, uh, we should do some picks. that are not related to code since we've oh, talked about a lot man. of things code related? No, all my picks are related to code. So all right. It's going to be non-stop code picks. All right, let's do some picks. So the first pick, which is something I alluded to, was the Hire.com 2022 State of Software Engineers. And uh, Ruben Rails number two, second only to go. But I think we all know, John, who the real winners are. And I think that's been reflected in both in our experiences. There's been an amazing scramble for Ruben Rails developers this year. You know, in the first few months of 2022, the most amazing churn I've seen in developer roles, which is not good for software companies, but is absolutely fantastic for developers. So it depends which side you sit on that. My second pick is something which is driving me bonkers. So I'm just taking stuff out for Postgres database and streaming it as a stream download because it's like a massive download in CSV, yeah? And it maxes out my CPU. Just putting this stuff through Ruby is is eating all the CPU on the server just to download a text file, John. It's insane. And I've just found this feature in Postgres where it will put the data in CSV file format for you in C++ and massively reduce your uh, your overheads. You're nodding because you already know about it. I didn't know about it. And maybe listeners don't know about it. So I'm picking it. It's PG, SCSV, GEM. No. The GEM explains how to do it. I am glad that you found it and too. There's some quirky stuff out there that my obscure life. things, I should say. <laughs> there are obscure things out there that like you stumble upon and maybe it, like you use them on a project like eight years ago. And then somebody discovers it today and you're like, I know about that thing. It's just cool. It's helped me out. It's helped me out. Let's go in tonight. And my last thing, we use a thing from Victron, which is a solar energy monitoring thing. It does all kinds of things. But of course, as soon as we got it, I was right-clicking, viewing the source, John, having a look how they've done their front end for their solar panels and their nice graphs. And they use a library called HighCharts.js, which I hadn't come across. It's the usual SVG in the browser solution for a graph mm -hmm. or a chart, but it just looks really nice. So it's, I'm picking it out on the stylistic terms. I just really like the way it looks on the page. Got it. Got it. You also have to pay for it too. What are your picks? You also have to pay for that one. Pretty sure, right? High charts is the pay for uh, one, not the free one. There's like a free alternative, whatever. But it, you're right. It does look pretty. Sure. Okay. So I have two picks. I, I do have one programming pick. Excuse me. Sorry. So my programming pick is, all right, so I had to add two-factor auth to an application. And I, you know, you have to do like this wizard thing, right? Because you have to say, are you sure you want to do two-factor auth or whatever? You know, continue more or less, right? Then you say, okay, well, here's your little QR code that you can scan now into your, you know, your two-factor auth app. 
and uh, you know they scan it, and then you have to go to the next page and you say enter in a valid code. They enter in a code, and then you have to come back and say, sweet, that worked or it didn't work, right? And now you've enabled. So you've kind of got like a little wizard going up. Now I did it. I um, I use stimulus to basically. I I mean I created just the simple like modal controller, and its only job was to uh, do a fetch call, right? and populate whatever was inside my modal, right? So I did the whole wizard inside the modal. Sure. I used the wicked gem or whatever that handles wizards on the back end. All of that was super smooth, except for I just had some like weird quirky stuff when I got to like submitting the uh, token uh, to confirm it or whatever, right? Because that's a put, not a get. And uh, instead of uh-huh. instead of spending a whole bunch more time like writing more code in my stimulus controller to handle you know the put side i was like "Ah, i'm gonna try this turbo thing because i was like reading something about it earlier that day just like let's just see what happens and holy cow i just put like a turbo tag in there i you know just used the regular like rails submit thing and it just like replaced the stuff inside the turbo tag and then i just added a thing for like stimulus to like you know basically like trigger stimulus to like move on to the next or to like load something afterwards or whatever boom i was done and i was like holy cow this stuff works and i mean not that i didn't think that it worked but it like it just blew my mind i was just very excited about it so i'm definitely i'm definitely recommending turbo it it really does do what it says and it works really well with stimulus and i considered going back and rewriting the whole thing using turbo and like popping the stimulus out altogether but i just you know i just let that go or whatever maybe you may Maybe another time, but it really was very easy to use. How did you do the state transitions between each part of, of the wizard? So basically, a page transition. Yep. Not a- so so the page isn't. Uh, so I have a modal, right? The only thing that's changing is the modal. Uh-huh. The state is changing on the back end. So basically, the user. Right. So each of these pages, I'm not really changing state. The if you've used the wicked gem before which maybe you haven't oh i see so you're just stacking it and then when you submit the format puts it all in at once yeah so when you submit the form then i mark your user as okay now you're using two-factor auth and and this is your token or whatever and all that kind of stuff so i mean i'm sorry i add the token to the or the the sort of seed token to the user whatever the thing that determines what they're you know what you're using i add the seed token to the user on the first step that happens there then then i like flag your user as using two-factor off once you've entered a successful token or whatever so every time you open the wizard it's going to generate a new seed token and and populate it or whatever because you're starting at step one so if you cancel out in the process you know or whatever you'll get a new one yeah i mean that's that's basically how it works the only thing that stimulus is doing on the front end is doing a fetch and then it's basically taking the little the small snippet of HTML that it gets back and plopping it on this modal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, anyway, uh, it's super cool. That's pretty convincing. It was very easy to use. Um, I was very happy with how it turned out. And I felt like, I, I mean, I literally was like, shoot, I got to write this wizard. Wasn't really planning on doing it. The two-factor auth thing was kind of like a late request. And I literally got the whole entire thing done in like five hours. And and I didn't have any bootstrap on this project or anything. Like there's no bootstrap, no tailwind, no framework, CSS framework. So I like wrote my modal from scratch. So like two hours of it were me doing CSS because I'm slow at CSS. And so, yeah, the functional part of it was only a couple hours. It was very fast. I was I was pretty proud of that. Yeah. So that's my code thing for today. And then my last thing is is actually 
So uh, I've been kind of into like, you know, we're, we're all at home and all that kind of stuff. I'm definitely into comfortable clothing, right? Very much into comfortable clothing. I like, I like comfortable clothing. Just, just the way it is. And uh, so my wife actually purchased me like this super hella soft robe for, for my birthday. It's super awesome. Also, it costs a crap ton of money. So I don't, whatever. I'm still recommending it because it's amazing. But it's like, it's like from Everjay <laughs> and it's like super, it's super soft and awesome. So it, for me, that's great. I like soft stuff. I like comfortable clothing. That's why I wear like track pants and like t shirts like all the time <laughs> stuff. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's my second pick. Cool. All right. Very cool. What was great discussing this with you today, Luke. I hope all of y'all have some cool new tools that you heard us talk about or or you're thinking about how other people use tools. Uh, maybe some of you will upgrade your version of Mac OS before me next time it comes out <laughs> and help me help me get through all the headache and solve my problems. <laughs> I feel kind of bad sometimes, but I'm like, uh, somebody cares about it more than me, so it's, it's okay. Awesome. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.